Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Amen. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. Again, it'll be in the booklet and obviously up here on the screen. And as always, I encourage you to follow along in your Bible, whether that's a paper Bible you have with you or on your phone. So Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. Hear now the word of your Creator and your Redeemer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked him, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking them in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children of my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. I had a dream, and in my dream, I was in India, and I was with a cab driver, and he was a little bit reckless in the way he drove the cab. And so it was pretty much a white-knuckle ride the whole time with this guy. And then we got in a car accident, and we died, and the two of us were standing at the pearly gates with St. Peter. And as we were standing there, St. Peter took us in, and first he took the cab driver and the cab driver got the most beautiful, largest, most incredible mansion I had ever seen. And St. Peter said, this is your reward for your service to God. And I thought, wow, Lord, if a cab driver who wasn't even that good a driver gets that kind of a gift, I am really going to have something. And we went a little further, and I chatted with St. Peter, and then I came up, and I had just a small little house. And I said, St. Peter, I, I don't quite understand. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad to be here, but I thought if a cab driver got that mansion, I, I spent my life as a pastor teaching your word. I thought I would get something greater. And he said, well, Brett, when you taught, people slept. But when that man drove his cab, everybody prayed. <laughs> so. Okay, I didn't really have that dream, but <laughs> I have ridden with that cab driver in India, and I can testify it's true. I spent a lot of time in prayer when I was in India in cabs. I, I bring that joke up because it's a reminder to us that the things we think are great are oftentimes not. The way we view life, we're probably going to be surprised <laughs> when we get to heaven that oftentimes what's great in our eyes is not in the eyes of God, and vice versa. And we're going to see that in our text today. And this is an, another important spot. There's a major shift happening here in the Gospel of Mark. You know, we have to remember that in each new story, it's oftentimes something big happening because we're taking three years, over three years of Jesus's life and compressing it into this small gospel. And here, we are at a point in the gospel where virtually everything in this gospel, almost every event has happened in Galilee, and a lot of the gospel has actually happened in the town of Capernaum. Um, but we're going to see in this text, it is the very last time Jesus is in Galilee. He is leaving Galilee. In today's text, it's the last time Galilee is mentioned until the resurrection. Jesus does say, I'm going to go back and meet with you in Galilee after my resurrection, and he does go back there. But this is the last time he and the disciples are in Galilee, also the last time in Capernaum. Um, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. Mark doesn't directly say it, Luke does, but 
The rest of the gospel is a journey towards Jerusalem where one would think he's going to the city of the king. And so we would think that the king is going to be received and we're going to see that the disciples, that's the way they're thinking. But Jesus is letting them know that actually what awaits in Jerusalem is trouble. It's not what they would expect. And so he is taking time to teach the disciples, to prepare them. That's what's going on that we're gonna be looking at this week and next is these lessons for the disciples about what's gonna happen in the future. And so we're gonna take a couple of weeks to work through what is really, they, they fit together pretty tightly, but there's so much information there because Jesus is really trying to prepare them. There's not much time left. So let's dig into what he's doing. So the first thing is lessons for the disciples. And the first lesson is the king must die. Now notice in the text, in, in verse 30 and 31, we're being told that Jesus left the place, he's passing through Galilee, and it's the last time we're gonna see the word Galilee until we get late in the book talking about his post-resurrection appearances. And Jesus doesn't want anyone to know where they are. Now we've seen throughout the early part of the gospel, crowds are flocking to Jesus, and so it's hard for him to be alone. So he is really taking some back roads, so to speak. He's trying to stay hidden. He does not want people to know where he is. And the reason for that is he's trying to get uninterrupted time to teach the disciples. Notice he doesn't want anyone to know where they are because he's teaching the disciples. We've seen a lot of times he keeps getting interrupted and Jesus is kind of displaying a sense of urgency here. Time is short. The disciples are not ready, as is going to be apparent over these next two weeks. We're going to see how unready they are. And he's trying to get uninterrupted time to teach them. And so the first lesson, again, we've heard once before. Uh, the first lesson is there in verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. And so there's this unexpected thing. The disciples think they know what's going to happen with Messiah. Messiah is going to come and we are going to receive him. He's going to run the Romans out. He's going to be enthroned. It's all going to be wonderful. But Jesus is telling them, and again, this is the second time, no, your expectations are upside down. What you think is going to happen is not what is going to happen. The first time he did this was in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He's going to do it actually again in Mark chapter 10, verse 33. So at the end of chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, Jesus three times makes this prediction. And in all three of them, there are the same three basic components. The same three things are stated. Number one, as the Son of Man, Jesus is going to be rejected. Number two, he's going to be put to death. And number three, he will be raised after three days. Those three things are in every one of those predictions. There's three times he makes the statement. All three times, these three things are stated. I'm the son of man and I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be put to death. But after three days, I am going to be raised. But there are also little distinctions. One of the questions in the discussion guide is to read the three predictions with one another and, and say what's the same and what's unique in each one of them. And there are a couple of things that are a little bit unique in this particular one in verse 31. The first thing that is unique in it is it's not just the leaders who are going to condemn Jesus, but he's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. And chapter 8, verse 31, it said, you know, that the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the chief priests are going to reject me and they're going to put me to death. But here we're being told it's not the leaders, but all humans. Now, the leaders are part of men. They are part of humanity. They are part of the group. But Jesus is letting us know it's not just the leaders. See, you, the disciples might think, because remember, they were from the common people. It could become easy to say, yeah, you know, it's those leaders. They're the problem. But who are the ones that bring about the death of the Son of God? It's all of us. Every one of us, as we're heading towards Good Friday and Easter now, there is constantly this thing that goes on now, this drumbeat about whether the Gospels are somehow racist or classist and how they're trying to blame it on Jewish people and do all this. And 
I always marvel, like, do you people actually read the Gospels? Because they're clear. Everyone is responsible for the death of the Son of God. There is collusion between the Jews and the Romans, between the leaders and the people. Everyone is responsible for this. And Jesus points this out here. It's going to be into the hands of men, all men. And notice, it's kind of interesting, the Son of Man. I'm the one who's come to be the second Adam, like we sang this morning, to fulfill the law so that you might be able to stand before God. That Son of Man, the true man, is going to get betrayed into the hands of false men, which is all of us. Secondly, notice it uses the word that he's going to be betrayed and handed over. This is a pretty interesting word. Uh, The word can mean betrayed. The first time we actually see this word in the gospel is when it lists the 12 disciples in Mark chapter 3. And in verse 19, it lists the final disciple, and Judas, who later would betray him. Same word is here. So the disciples ought to get their ears pricked up. What do you mean he's going to get betrayed? Because you can only be betrayed by someone who's close to you, someone who is a friend. But what's interesting is, as Jews use this word very often, it had the idea of betrayal, but it also had the idea of what's known as a divine passive, which means you're not, you're not stating that God's going to be active in the process. You use the, the passive voice. But the idea was that, make no mistake, God is actually involved in this. God is working in and through this. So even though this is a horrible thing, it's not that God's been snookered, that God fell asleep, that he didn't understand, that he missed what was going on. This same word is used in a text we've referenced many times. It's very important to the Gospel of Mark in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, 6, we have the the phrase, a very famous verse, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That phrase, has laid, that's how the NIV translates it, that is the same word. Okay, it's the, it's the same idea. So what is happening here is the Lord is putting the sins on him, but it's the same word that Jesus says is he's gonna be betrayed because even in the midst of the servant doing the suffering, the servant being betrayed, which comes out in Isaiah 53, make no mistake, the Lord is the one who is active. The Lord is the one who is working. In fact, this idea and this same term became common in referring to Jewish martyrs. People who had suffered under men like Antiochus Epiphanes, and there are all these writings between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the, the idea of this term of betrayal, this idea of being handed over or handed down was commonly used for martyrs. And Jesus is in essence saying, you've heard about this with other martyrs, I'm going to be the martyr. I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be betrayed. But make no mistake, that is not a sign that God has fallen asleep at the switch. No, God the Father is active and working in all things. No matter what happens, God is at work. Men are going to be doing this. They are going to be held responsible for what they do. But God is always working to overrule and to bring about his will. So notice, he's rejected, he's killed. These are the things that men do, but what's the third thing he says every time? And after three days, I'm going to be raised. People are going to do what people are going to do, but God is going to overrule and do what God says he's going to do. He is going to accomplish his will. And so Jesus begins with this instruction, which he's given before, Um, because they're leaving familiar territory, they're heading towards Jerusalem, and Jesus is not going to be received as the King, the Messiah, uh, but rather he's going to be rejected, betrayed, and killed. But Jesus is wanting to know, but make no mistake, guys, when you get there, this is not what you're expecting, but remember this, God is at work. Jesus is going to be raised on the third day, and then he is going to be installed as the King but it's going to be in a very different process than you thought. Now, 
The disciples hear this, and again, they've heard this before. So we might expect that we would read the disciples grasp this, they ask Jesus a few questions, but that's not what happens. We move on, and Mark tells us of another lesson that Jesus has to give them. So notice in verse 32, we don't have to surmise, we're told they did not understand what he were meant. Lord, I don't understand what the word betrayed means. I don't understand what the word died means, okay? The problem is not that they don't understand these words. They don't understand how this can possibly apply to Jesus. They are still very confused, but notice they're afraid to ask him about it. Because if you remember the first time he did this, they didn't understand it, but what did Peter do? Remember, he took Jesus aside and said, oh no, Lord, you're confused. And, and we're actually told Peter rebuked Jesus. And then Jesus, you remember, turned and looked at the other disciples and then rebuked Peter. Well, they all did get one lesson out of that. They're like, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> Peter, we voted. You go talk to him about this. Peter's like, I'm not talking to him. I know what happened last time. But they're as confused as they ever were. They can't fathom what Jesus is teaching them because the kingdom is upside down from their expectations. And that's what Mark's gonna be driving at now. So no one is stepping out to ask Jesus. They ought to be asking because the time is short, but they're not asking. But that doesn't mean that they're standing there in silence. It doesn't mean that they've pulled out their Bible and are trying to search to figure out what's going on. Oh no, they have another conversation happening. So we have to picture they're walking down the road. Jesus is apparently up front. They're all behind him. This is oftentimes the way that teaching was done. They're walking along behind him, and they eventually get to Capernaum, and they go back into the house. This is probably the same house. It may well be Peter's house. It might be one that Jesus owned, but there's been a lot of events in a house in Capernaum. Uh, if you go back to Mark chapter 2, you'll see a lot of stuff there. They're back at that same familiar house, and Jesus asked a question. So when we were walking along, I heard discussion going on behind me. What was it you guys were arguing about? What was, what was the animated discussion about? Now, surely they must be discussing what Jesus told them that they didn't understand. I mean, it's important. He, he's gone out of his way to stay hidden from everybody else so that he can have private time to teach them, and they didn't get it. So surely they were having an argument among themselves as to what Jesus meant. Surely they, they must have been breaking out their Old Testament and trying to reference, how does Isaiah 53 fit with like Genesis 3.15? And how does it fit with God's promise for the Messiah in 2 Samuel 7? Surely they must be trying to work all this out together, right? But see, Jesus knows what is going on. And though they are afraid to ask him, the embarrassing reality is what were they arguing about? Who's the greatest? Now you can bet no one's gonna step forward to answer Jesus over this at this point, okay? But this is what they've been doing. They still don't understand. They're, what they're arguing about is we're going to Jerusalem and we're gonna get thrones and one of us is gonna be on the throne closest to Jesus and it's gonna be me because I'm the greatest. I've driven out more demons. I understand more of what's going on. That's what the argument's about. They're not understanding. Discipleship's not about getting a throne, but taking up a cross. That's what, if you want to be the most like Jesus, then what's awaiting you in Jerusalem is a cross, not a throne. But they're not getting that, so they're having this embarrassing discussion. And we've seen this before, because if you remember the first time Jesus announced this, in Mark chapter 8, when he had given the same lesson. Notice in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, he had called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me. You want to know what a disciple is? This is what it is. If you follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. And whoever wants to lose his life, or whoever loses life for me and for the gospel, will actually save it. So Jesus had already taught this when they misunderstood the first prediction of his death. So they should already know this by now. 
I've already told you once before what's going to happen to me and what it means for you. This is the nature of discipleship, and this is the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is upside down from what you expect. In the kingdom, if you want to find life, you lose it. And if you're trying to save your life, you're actually going to lose your life. It is the opposite of the way you were thinking. But see, they're not thinking about the cross. They're thinking about crowns. Even though Jesus told them this is what it means. It doesn't mean you get crowns. It means you get a cross. They're not thinking about giving their life away. They're thinking about how they're going to get their life. They're thinking about the power that they are about to accrue. Now, get the irony that's going on here in the text. Jesus, God in the flesh, is speaking about being humbled and willingly dying for our sins. And the confused disciples who throughout the gospel have shown an incredible inability to understand what Jesus is teaching them. And they just failed. Remember the previous story, they'd come down the Mount of Transfiguration and what have the disciples failed at doing? Driving out a demon. Jesus has authorized them to teach the kingdom. They still don't understand the kingdom. He's authorized them to drive out demons. They just failed at driving out a demon. But what is consuming them? How I'm better than you are. I mean, this is ultimate irony that is happening here. They're arguing over their own greatness. And it's showing us they do not understand the nature of of the kingdom. So Jesus says, okay, we're going to do a lesson here. So we read, starting in verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12. Now, Mark notes sitting down. This is important because it's very different in the way we do. We are typically here, as we are each Sunday, and I stand and you sit. In the time of Jesus, when you came into place, if you weren't out walking, the rabbi sat and you stood. Maybe we should do that. I would, get a, I would get a lot more rest if we just had a chair here, and I would sit, and everybody stood in front of me. That, but that's what they normally did. So when Mark notes Jesus is sitting down, it's not just a little passing reference. It's there for a reason. Jesus is taking the posture of the teacher. I gave you guys a chance to answer what you were arguing about on the way, and yet you're afraid to do it. So now I'm going to have to teach you again. I'm going to give you a lesson. And he knows what they're arguing about. And so he says, here's the lesson. If anyone wants to be first, what does he have to be? Last. See, the kingdom is the opposite of what you think it is. You think that what you should be doing is trying to get life. I'm telling you, if you do that, you lose life. That's the way the kingdom works. If you want to find life in the kingdom, you lose it. If you want to find a crown, you take up a cross. And what I'm telling you now is, if you want to be first, you have to be last. And what that means is, you have to be the servant of who? All. You have to be the servant of all. Now this is completely upside down to the common way of thinking. I mean, you want to be first, not last. Nobody says looking out for number three million. Who do we look out for? Number one. And who's number one? Me. That's what I do. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's, that's not right. Number one's actually last. Last is actually first. See, VIPs, what if I joined a club and you know I went to a place and I said, I have a VIP pass. I paid to get the VIP pass. And they say, oh, that's awesome. Go to the back of the line. I mean, what would we do? We, we, would, we, we would get, I remember a couple years ago, I was actually arguing with a cable company because if, if you haven't noticed, this cable companies actually do that to you. The longer you stay with the same cable company, the more they charge you. They give new people better deals than old people. And I called and I was trying to describe it and they were trying to explain to me how that was reasonable. And I said, see, I go to Starbucks 
And the more Starbucks I buy, the more free stuff they give me. The more I use your product, the more you charge me. I don't want to be a VIP if <laughs> that's the way you're doing it, okay? But see, they were actually being kind of biblical, is what Jesus is telling me. That's the way it works. He who is first is going to be last. And he who is last is actually going to be first. So Jesus is saying, you know what? You come in and how do you tell who the great person is? We say, you look and they're sitting at the table and everybody's waiting on them. Jesus says, no, it's the one who's doing the waiting. That is the great person. Now let's be, I mean, see now this is when I'm waiting for Peter to jump and pull Jesus aside and say, you clearly don't get it, Lord, right? But see, Jesus is telling us the kingdom is the opposite of the way we think. And so Jesus says, no, true greatness is being a servant. This particular word is not the, there's two Greek words that are usually used for servant. One of them is to be a slave. The other one is to be the, the person who waits on tables. That's what this word is. It's the word from which we get deacon or servant. And Jesus says, look, you are called to be a deacon. But see, actually in the ancient world, just like it is in our world, it's no different. That is not the way they thought. They, no, that's, that's not what you want to be. You want to be the one being waited on, not the one doing the serving, not the one waiting. And so true greatness, Jesus says, if you really want to understand greatness, it's being willing to serve everyone else and wait to be last. That is what greatness looks like. And then Jesus says, let me give you an object lesson. So he calls a little child over to him. And we often misunderstand this. We think his lesson here is to be like the little child, but that's not actually his lesson when he's using a child this time. Notice what he says. He took a little child and he had him stand among them. And taking him in his arms, he says to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, uh, whoever uh, welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me, the, in other words, the Father. And so notice here, what he's doing is he's embracing this little child by example. Because contrary to the way we might think, in their culture, children and women were overlooked and ignored. Okay, the gospel is radical. When, when we looked a few weeks ago at Jesus saying, let Mary sit at my feet and hear, every other rabbi would have said, why? She should be up serving. Women don't get to listen and talk about the word. That's not, that's not their place. The men talk about Torah. The men argue over these things. The women need to stay in their place. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let her come and sit. The same thing was true with children. It was not only that children were to be, you know, seen but not heard. They weren't even really to be seen. They were sent off. They were away. They were beneath notice. Many children died when they were very young. So it's like you're kind of disposable. That's honestly the way it was. And so Jesus takes this little child, and he's, he's not teaching a lesson to be like the little child, but rather this child that probably none of you even noticed was here. You were ignoring them. What I'm telling you is if you want to be great, you'll take this child. You'll receive this child. You'll welcome this child just like I am doing. That is the call. We can see if we understand the nature of true greatness by how we respond to the people that everybody else overlooks. See, that's what Jesus is saying. If you truly have understood the kingdom that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, if you've truly understand that you're called to be a servant to all, then the very people that the rest of the world ignores, you will be receiving. You will be paying attention to. That shows you got the kingdom. But if what you do is you're rushing around after the ones that everybody else is rushing around, it shows that you're still thinking like the world, not like the kingdom. I won't put this up on the, on the screen, but you remember James says something about this in his gospel, so different than the way we think. James said, look, if you're in your meeting and, and a, a poor person comes in and you say, hey, go stand at the back, and then a rich person comes in and you say, oh, we, we have a seat of honor for you down front. James says, oh boy, you, you, you are thinking 
like the world. That, that, is, that is adultery, spiritual adultery with the world to do that way. But boy, are we tempted to do that. We, we so often give places of honor. We even do this in the church constantly. I, I can't tell you the number of articles I get that tell me how I need to prioritize our church reaching the right people. I've been asked that by someone who used to be a member of our church, asked me, who are the people you're trying to reach? Those who are breathing. That's who I'm trying to reach. Okay, but, but which group? The ones who are sinners. But I mean within. No, there is no within. That, that, it, that is absolutely not what we are trying to do. But I am telling you, it is, I'm not talking about from apostate churches, that is a constant drumbeat. But Jesus says, then you're not thinking like the kingdom. The kingdom says if you really want to be great, if you want to be returned, if you want to be there in that dream and get the big mansion, then be like the cabbie. Get people to pray. Serve the less and the least the ones that everybody else is ignoring. You may not make it on the front of Church Quarterly magazine, but you'll be on the heart of the Father because he views things differently than we do. So disciples have to understand the upside-down nature of the kingdom, and they have to understand that God's kingdom is established through the death of the king, not through everybody receiving him. And greatness is found in being a servant of everyone. So how do we, let, let's, let's take this lesson and we're gonna dive in and apply the word. And we're gonna see next week, by the way, and it's hysterical, I mean, I've already done all my study for next week. The disciples just completely stumble over this. I mean, John's like, yeah, 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 Lord but there was a guy doing something and we didn't like it and we tried to shut him down. I mean, they completely missed this lesson because this is against the way we think. So we're gonna take a step back and stop right here and say, Lord, how do I apply this? There's two basic questions. Number one, do I understand the upside down nature of the kingdom? And hearing, when I'm saying upside down nature, what's really upside down? Our world is upside down, but it makes the kingdom look upside down to us, okay? But since it's from our perspective and the way it is in the world, do we understand the upside down nature of the kingdom? Now, look, this concept is simple to grasp. It, nothing I've just explained is say, that was like physics. No, that was, this is very simple, okay? What Jesus is telling us. But it is so hard to allow this to restructure my thinking until it becomes the way I see the world. Because the world is ingraining in us the exact opposite. This entire world, we are going to leave here and we are going to walk into a world that does it exactly the way the disciples were arguing on the road. The world looks and says, I don't get it. I think the disciples are right and Jesus is wrong. You can't run the world this way. That's exactly how we tend to view it. So this requires constant meditation and prayer and reminding myself of this until it rewires my brain. You know, there's this, this information we've learned now about the way our brains are. They sometimes call it rewiring. They sometimes refer to it as the plasticity of the brain. And what it means is over time, your brain and mine gets gets formed into a certain way. We get certain neural pathways and it's just the default way our mind works. You get in a situation and this is what you do. You automatically go this way. You've got well-worn paths. The good news is, well, let me start. The bad news is when that happens, we act without even thinking about it. I just get in the situation and I act and I find out when I'm steps down the path, oh my word, I'm acting and I wasn't even thinking about it. That's the bad news. Because we are hardwired to be just like the disciples. Let's be, I mean, we can sit here and nobody wants to say, I, okay, Brett, you're right, I disagree with Jesus. We're not gonna say that, right? But let's be honest. I mean, am I really gonna run around and the, the greatest person is the servant of all that I expect the president to be up waiting on the table? And Jesus says, mm, yeah, 
I mean, I remind us on the night he's betrayed, who's the one that's down taking the place of the servant washing feet? It's, is it just the president? It's the sovereign of the universe. Who's the one that's waiting on everybody? I mean, Jesus makes this exact point. But we have to see that. So that's the bad news. We have a default path that runs through the way the disciples are thinking. Here's the good news. Because your brain is plastic, because it can be rewired, over time, we can change it. We can make it so that I start thinking and seeing the way Jesus is, but it's not easy. This takes a lot of work. And this is why it's so easy even for us as believers to fall into the way of the world, to grasp for power, to seek primacy rather than servanthood. We, we see this constantly. Uh, I, I get so grieved, but almost every time I see stories of a famous big-name pastor that has gotten himself in trouble, and it's usually over some kind of sexual sin. But you know what you find out? Long, long before that. That person was too important to talk to everybody. I've got to get scooted off. Nobody can get around me. I've got summer homes that I'm off and I fly around in private jets. Wake up, stop that stuff. That is okay if you want to be the CEO of some company, not if you are a pastor. It's not acceptable. But it is just common in our culture today. And well, but if we're building, then stop building the church that way. Just don't do it. Do it like Jesus says. So the question is, which seems upside down to me? When I hear Jesus, I mean, and this is a real question. When I hear Jesus, do I say, that makes perfect sense? Or do I say, I don't get it, Lord. That lets me know which way my brain's being wired, which way the ruts are running. And let's be honest with ourselves on this question. It's a great time for us to do reflection and to ask the Lord to keep working because the world every day is trying to rewire your brain back to its way. Second question, am I living as a servant to others? See, Jesus is not dispensing tidbits of information. What he's trying to do is teaching me how I should act in my daily life. The ultimate issue, I mean, he brings the child in there and he does this. He's not just giving a bit of doctrinal information that's unrelated to daily life. He's saying, this is how I want you to behave. This is how I want you to work. When I read this, it should convict me of my sin. It should show me my need for Jesus because we all struggle with being a servant to other people. Every one of us in this room, since the fall, we find it, I want others to serve me. That is my selfish nature, okay? So it certainly convicts me. But let's not stop there as if Jesus said, well, that's meant to convict you how bad you are. You're forgiven. Go forth and be selfish. No. Holy Spirit, form and change me. I want to be more like Jesus. That's, that's the difference between what's called the first and second use of the law and the third use of the law. We're convicted by the law of God where I'm falling short and why I need a Savior. But the third use is as a believer, the Holy Spirit is saying, but I want to form you to make you more like this. I want you to be in a place that you are willing to love and serve others. But Let's make no mistake, this is hard for us, and it's hard for two reasons. Number one, who in here is human? Okay? Since the Garden of Eden, who in here has a sinful nature? Is that nature given to servanthood or selfishness? Richard Dawkins is wrong on almost everything the man says. He's an atheistic scientist guy. But he was right that he wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. Yes, they're all selfish. <laughs> That's called the fall. That's the way we're born. We are born. I mean, who in here as a parent ever trained their child to be selfish? 
right? Who, who had to sell the child? Stop being so generous and giving all your toys away, right? The, the thing is, stop hitting your sibling in the head with the toy because, because they're playing with their own toy. I mean, right? We are selfish from birth. It is the way we are wired. But secondly, I want to add on to that. In our culture today, we live in a consumer culture. The spirit of our age is a consumer age which says you should have everything your way. The point of life is getting everything exactly as you want it. Everybody is here to serve you. And if you're not happy with the way it is, pick up and move on somewhere else because they ought to be serving you. And when I'm discipled in that 24 hours a day, and then Jesus comes in and says, hey, here's true greatness. You be the servant. Set your desires aside. Put their desires ahead of your own. Man, I mean, that goes completely against not only my fallen nature, but the way I have been uh, formed, shaped, apprenticed, discipled by our age. So the way to change my heart in this area, however, is to practice acts of service until they shape my soul. One of the mistakes we make today is, you know, we hate the fake it till you make it, we call it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit around and pray in Jesus. I'll start serving people when I feel servantly. No, you won't. Because <laughs> you're not going to feel servantly. Okay? That's not the way it works. What forms a servant's heart in me is actually serving other people. Beginning to engage in serving others is an action that will start to shape my soul. It slowly begins to form my soul into the nature of a servant. That's what it does as I do it. So as we think of this, it's a good question. You know, we're kind of talking through this season of Lent and, you know, fasting from to feast on. Ask ourselves a question. How can I grow in acts of service in this season? Okay, not just, Lord, I want to have a servant's heart. What am I going to do to help form and shape that? How can I build a habit of serving in my family? See, the family is the primary place of discipleship. If you are married or you have children or even if you're a single adult and you have other families, the people you're around constantly, that's where the rubber really is. It's easy to once in a while be with somebody and act as a servant for a few minutes, but what about doing it every day? Are we actually serving? So is there some way that if I were to ask, either my spouse would want or my children or something, that, that would really show them I am trying to serve you. I am putting your need ahead of my need. Regularly, daily, I'm going to build this habit pattern. Is there a way that I could do it in the church? I ask this periodically, but if you're coming and you come in, you know, right as the meeting starts or after the meeting starts and then you leave immediately after and you're not serving, look, glad you're here, but I want you to know we're not called to be consumers. Our culture is doing that for us on Sunday where I can be a consumer and I can come in here. That is not the call of Jesus. It is not the way of the kingdom. So how can I be involved in serving others? You know, Katie just mentioned about VBS crafting, but there's everything from greeting people at the front door, working in children's ministry, helping you know, set up a community. There's all kinds of ways, being on the worship team, that we can be involved and engaged and serve. But what I can tell you this is, no one's call is to not serve. That's not the way of the kingdom. It's the way of this world, but it's not the way of the kingdom. What about a neighbor or a coworker? And again, not because it's my job, not because I'm getting paid, not because, I'm, but I'm just looking for a way to be able to serve my neighbor or serve my coworker. Let the Lord show you, ask him to be showing you even this week, Lord, is there a way I can just step in and do something and serve? You might be shocked at how people will respond to that because we are not used to being served just spontaneously by someone else. And 
What I would encourage you to do in doing that, let the Spirit speak to you, but ask the Lord. Here's a great prayer. Lord, as I wake up this morning, give me opportunities to serve today. Jesus, I want to be like you. As you were a servant, I want to be a servant, so I'm asking you, open my eyes to show me opportunities so I can step in and do it. We're going to see in Mark 10, Jesus is actually going to say, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me. This is a way of life, but it begins with these individual acts. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to come down to the Lord's table, and we're going to start, if you can stand with me, we're going to start by reading Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, we have a what's often referred to as a hymn. They think Paul took a song that they probably sang in church gatherings, and he wrote it into the letter to the Philippians. So if you can go ahead and throw it up on the screen, this is Philippians 2, 5 through 11 that we're going to read together. And as we read it, hear the pattern of Jesus. Paul is making an appeal. Just previously, it said, look, don't look to your own interest. Look to everybody else's. Put, put the needs of others out there ahead of your own. And then he gives us the prime example of how we do that. So let's read God's word together. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. I encourage us to let that word sink deeply in us. That's a hymn. This is who Jesus is. This is the way of the kingdom. And the good news is, because Jesus came as a servant, we're saved. And the Lord invites us, and here's the amazing thing. The Lord, right now, is not the one who's going to be seated at the table. You and I are. And he's here to serve us at his own table. If you're a believer, if you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, if you know that he is the only hope of salvation, you are invited to the table. And I encourage you, let the Lord come and minister to you this morning at his table. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. So this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, you are the sovereign Lord of all, the word to whom all things were made and to whom obedience is due. Yet you took our flesh to yourself, becoming fully human and coming not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Like this bread, you were broken, but through your broken body, you have reconciled us to the Father and made us your own forever. And for this, we are eternally 
grateful. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, when you became human, you humbled yourself and were obedient, even to death on the cross. Your perfect blood was spilled so that our sins might be forgiven. And so we take this cup in remembrance of your sacrifice and with thankfulness for the forgiveness that we have in you. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. And let's stand together and pray for God's Spirit to fasten this to our hearts and to work in us this week. Lord Jesus, you humbled yourself and died for our salvation, but now you are exalted and reigning over all. And as your people, we bow our knee and confess with our tongue that you are Lord of all, and we worship you. As your followers, we want to show our gratitude by walking as you did. So we ask now that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit so that we would live as servants. Spirit of God, help us to serve all people, those who love us and those who revile us, those who are grateful and those who are not, those whom the world calls great and those the world ignores or despises. Lord, we ask that as we would walk in this way, you would use us to extend the kingdom of God, spreading its blessings, pointing others to Jesus so that they might embrace him as Lord. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our great servant, King. Amen. Amen. Now receive the blessing of God. God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed, blessed overflowingly. Therefore, go forth, serve everyone you meet to extend the blessings of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.